everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Behind the Stigma. I'm your host, Yara Minova, and in today's episode, we are back with the wonderful Dr. Alex Kermy from the Monthly Learning Podcast, and today's discussion is on diagnosis in mental health. Dr. Alex, welcome back. Thank you. Thank you for having me back. Awesome. I'm actually really looking forward to to this discussion mm-hmm. with you. So, this is quite a topic, right? With mm-hmm. a lot of controversy, debate in the field mm-hmm. of psychiatry, psychology, philosophy as well. And so mm-hmm. I want to have an honest, open conversation with you about diagnosis as well as disorder classifications. So mm-hmm. just to give some background, today we're talking about mental disorder classification. And if you're a recurring listener on the BTS podcast, then you've probably heard me talk about and speak to a number of researchers about critical psychiatry, the DSM, pharmacotherapy, Mm -hmm. and basically how mental disorders are diagnosed. And the point of today's discussion, I guess, is to have a more of a reflection of where we are standing in the field today, and as well as our understanding of diagnosis and its impact. So, Dr. Alex, perhaps we can start off with terminology. Um, What do we mean by the term disorder and also diagnosis? And do you see them as synonymous? Damn, that's a good question. Okay, so I would, let's start with disorder. Disorder would be a set of signs and symptoms, usually which the person finds particularly problematic, which are severe enough to cause some sort of disruption in in their functioning. And that could be their functioning in terms of how they relate to themselves, how they relate to the world, Mm-hmm. and how they relate to other people. So a set of problems, which we can call signs and symptoms, symptoms being usually what the person might report about themselves would be a symptom, whereas a sign would be something that a clinician would pick up or maybe that some other person would pick up, a collection of problems that causes enough of a disruption in their life relating to themselves, the world, or other people. That would be a disorder. And then a diagnosis is when you're you're making a statement about a ca- mm-hmm. what category that disorder falls into, because there are different kinds of disorders. And it's helpful, although it's not always helpful, but it can be very helpful for reasons which are, we'll go into in more depth to categorize different yeah. disorders. Um, because it's a, it can be a very useful framework of, of understanding. Does that distinction make sense to you between diagnosis and disorder? Absolutely makes sense. Disorder is basically the terminology used, whereas the diagnosis is particularly cl- classifying or clarifying which disorder the person is yeah. diagnosed so, with. Yeah. So, so obviously disorder indicates like a disruption in functioning or, or a problem or a set of problems. And then the different diagnosis mm. can, can give you a framework of understanding of, well, what kind of problem is this? And then therefore, how could this problem or set of problems be addressed? Yeah. Yeah. So, okay. So some researchers or psychiatrists in the field have the view that mental disorders are best understood, as you mentioned now, as a cluster of symptoms co-occurring in patterns. And then this can be used pragmatically as it helps us identify those problems and guide with, you know, Mm. treatment or interventions. 
Whilst others say that it's based on a brain disease caused by chemical imbalances or um, brain, you know, changes in brain morphology, genetic defects, et cetera, uh, some of which perhaps we can get into later on. But I'm curious to know, where do you fit in your understanding of mental disorder classifications? Is it one or the other or the combination of both? I think it would be a combination, really depending on the problems that the person is presenting with. But it also depends on where the science is relating to those problems, because the science in terms of how the brain works is very incomplete. There's a lot of mystery about how the brain works. And therefore, mm-hmm. it can be very difficult in, in, I would say, most cases of people who are experiencing mental health problems at this stage to point to issues of, of brain morphology. In, in terms of diagnosis in general, whether you're diagnosing based on how the person presents to you, the problems they present, or whether you're diagnosing based on brain morphology or, or any other variable, I think the the... Mm-hmm point I'd like to bring across today is that diagnosis in in psychiatry is really a tool. And Mm -hmm. like any tool, it can be used well and it can be used productively or it could be used badly. And then later I'd like to get into, you know, how can you use diagnosis productively or how can you use diagnosis in a bad way? I think like any tool, diagnosis has strengths and it has weaknesses and we can get into the strengths and weaknesses as well. And I, I'm glad yeah. that at the beginning, you also mentioned that diagnosis is not just a problem within the medical field or the psychological field. It's a philosophical problem. And that's a point I'd like to bring at the start as well, because really what diagnosis is, as I alluded to before, it's it's a, a diagnosis, is a kind of categorical thinking. And whether mm-hmm. you're a psychiatrist or not, Human beings are hardwired to think in a categorical fashion. We are constantly putting things into buckets mm-hmm. as a way of simplifying the world. And as I said before, that has a lot of strengths and a lot of advantages, but it also has weaknesses. And I think if you can engage with that process while being aware that you can do it, mm-hmm. well, while being aware that, that that is what's happening and that it's not always an accurate representation of reality, you can take advantage of all the strengths of that categorical thinking while hopefully minimizing Mm. the impact of its weaknesses. And that's, as a psychiatrist, that's what I try and do with diagnosis, is to try and maximize the strengths, use it when appropriately, and minimize the weaknesses. And sometimes I don't use diagnosis. I think it's important for me to to point out. Yeah, that that actually leads me very well to my next question. Um, so you're a psychiatrist. And so I'm, I'm actually very interested to how you use diagnosis practically. So maybe you can just very quickly say where these mental disorder classifications arrive from. So just briefly introducing the, the DSM or the ICD um, and, and where they come from. And then how you approach this as a psychiatrist on a day-to-day or, you know, on a weekly basis. Mm-hmm. So very broadly, in America, they use something called the DSM, which is the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual. And in Europe, they use the Mm -hmm. ICD, the International Classification of Diseases. And what these are essentially documents born out Mm -hmm. of data collection from many, many different patients over a very long period of time to try and establish what kind of problems 
do people present with? And therefore, what kind of categories can we put people into? There's loads of different categories in, in both the DSM and the ICD. They're roughly, they're quite similar. They present with similar patient groups, but very big common categories are, for example, mood disorders, for mm-hmm. example, things like depression or bipolar, um, psychotic disorders like schizophrenia or schizoaffective disorder, uh, anxiety disorders such as generalized anxiety disorder, panic disorder, post-traumatic stress disorder, mm-hmm. uh, and so on and so forth. There's loads, there's lots of very esoteric ones, but basically these are documents which present yeah. all these different kinds of disorders uh, and then all the different um, diagnoses that fall into those sections. And then it gives you criteria on on what on which basis you can diagnose them or not. So for example, mm-hmm. to diagnose someone with depression, there's a list of criteria, there's a list of symptoms and signs that you would expect someone to present with. For example, with depression, it would be low mood, disruption in appetite, mm-hmm. disruption in sleep, guilt, yeah. problems with energy and motivation, suicidality. And there'd be a guide as to if a person presents with enough of those symptoms that are intense enough and for a long enough duration of time, they could warrant a diagnosis of depression or not. And then you can also Mm -hmm. classify the intensity such as mild, moderate and severe depression. So that's an overview of what the DSM and the ICD are and roughly, you know, what they mean, what they're used for. In terms of my clinical work, I, I work in a variety of clinical contexts. So right now I work in three different clinical contexts, which is I work on a hospital ward mm-hmm. uh, for for general adult male patients. Mm. I work in an outpatient clinic that specializes in people who have had just one psychotic episode. And this is important mm-hmm. because then there are some clinics which would treat people who have recurrent psychotic episodes. But in this clinic, mm-hmm. we see people, it's called an early intervention service. So it's people who have just had one episode and we're trying our best to prevent mm-hmm. relapse. And then I work in a psychotherapy clinic. Now, obviously those contexts are very different. In the first two, yeah, wow. I use diagnosis quite a lot. And in the third one, because the mm-hmm. context is quite different, and really the aim is quite different. I use diagnosis a lot less, although sometimes it can come into play. So in in hospital, I am often treating people with quite severe acute mental health conditions. Almost everyone I treat. Can you give us an example? So an acute psychotic episode, for, for instance. Mm-hmm. And what that means is someone might have disorganized, disrupted thinking, disrupted, disorganized behavior. Uh, auditory or visual hallucinations and they may present with delusions which are beliefs which are held with a high degree of certainty that are generally felt by others Mm. to be uh, irrational or unlikely to be true and which which are very out of sync with that person's socio-cultural context. So for example it it wouldn't count Mm. If the person believed in Christian doctrine and they were raised Christian, that would not count as a delusional belief, obviously. But if they were never religious at all, and then all of a sudden developed very certain, very intensely held religious beliefs that, for example, they are a religious prophet, and that's quite a common kind of a delusion you see, actually, then that would be classified as a delusion. Mm -hmm. So that's, so acute psychotic episodes are something that you Mm -hmm. see a lot on hospital wards. 
Uh, and a, another kind of presentation that I see commonly is a, a manic episode, which is, for example, mm. uh, characterized by things like pressured speech, a, a tangential thought process, meaning the person would jump from one topic to another very quickly. They may have psychotic symptoms in addition. They tend to be high in energy. They tend to be sleeping very little, like as little as two hours a night. If someone presents with one manic episode and then they get treated and then they're well and they stay well, then they wouldn't actually qualify for a diagnosis of bipolar disorder. It would be a one-off manic episode. And similarly, if someone presents with one episode of psychosis and then they get treated Mm -hmm. and then they, they get well and they stay well, which many people with psychotic episodes do, they wouldn't qualify for a diagnosis mm-hmm. of schizophrenia. So it really it, okay. it depends on a lot of diagnosis in psychiatry depends on the patient's long term trajectory, and this is very important because one, one I think one of the things yeah. about diagnosis it's not supposed to be I think when it's used well it's not supposed to be a prison it's not supposed to be a restriction yeah. that you can't get out of. It's much more usefully thought of I think as a description of the person's problems to hopefully inform treatment. And it doesn't, it doesn't have to be a life sentence, I guess, is what I'm saying. Although it's worth noting that people do have chronic problems as well. Yeah, I, th- I think you've made a couple of very important points here. And it's very interesting. So essentially what happens then is, do you tell patients, so let's say um, you said that you come across people who've had one uh, psychotic episode and you know symptoms of mania and things like that. So when you speak to patients, how do you what do you tell them? Do you tell them that you have a mental disorder and that's it? Like, this is what you have? Or or do you, is it more of like a conversation, kind of like the one that we're having right now, that you have something that's known as a psychotic episode and you may be prone to schizophrenia, but you're not necessarily schizophrenic, for example. And then also, what does this mean now in terms of intervention? So people in these, in the hospital wards, what what, do you, what is the intervention? Will it always be psychiatric medication? Mm-hmm. In terms of how I diagnose someone, I, I think mm-hmm. it's very important to be a combination of direct, transparent, and compassionate, and taking into the long the long view, the long trajectory. So by direct, I mean telling them exactly what you think. By transparent. Mm-hmm. I mean, telling them, giving them a view into how we diagnose things as psychiatrists, much like we're doing now. And by compassionate, obviously, I mean compassionate. And then giving them the long view, which is what I described earlier, such as if someone has a psychotic episode, it doesn't mean they have schizophrenia. If someone has a manic episode, it doesn't necessarily mean they have bipolar. But both kinds of patients should know they're at risk of those conditions. And then obviously giving them an insight into how they can have the best chances of having a good prognosis, of having a good long-term trajectory. And there are a number of things, depending on the set of problems the person has, there will be a number Mm -hmm. of things that the person will be able to do for themselves with support to try and improve their prognosis and create a more optimistic view of long-term recovery. In terms of treatment, it just depends on on Mm. the condition and the nature of the condition. So I talked about psychotic episodes and manic episodes. So particularly in the beginning, if they're very acutely unwell, 
and we want to stabilize them, it is a very medication heavy process. Um, medications mm. are, I think, the spearhead of the treatment when you're acutely unwell. But then this waiting shifts as the person becomes well, they become discharged into the community, and then the focus becomes more what we call relapse prevention. And then I think all of the psychological factors are very important. The social factors become more important. And then I also think other health and lifestyle factors become very important, such as sleep nutrition, exercise, and things like that. And then even existential factors like, does the person have meaningful work? Do they feel motivated about life mm. in general? So there's all, there's all sorts of factors that then come into play in the, in the medium to, to long term, which we can talk about. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> there's a lot. There's so much. I <laughs> Welcome to my world. <laughs> okay. There's a couple of things I want to address. Um, mm -hmm. I want to actually get into how different um, people in the field, let's say researchers, psychologists, psychiatrists, view mental disorders. I mean, we spoke about it in terms of biological or, you know, epistemological, et cetera. But also there are, there are people who say that the DSM, the book that you, or the ICD that you spoke about is not based on you know, as I'm sure you've heard this argument over and over, not based on ideology, not based on any mm -hmm. genetic biomarkers, not based on any, you know, actual scientific process where mm -hmm. you can point to this and say that, yes, this is exactly what depression is, or yes, this is exactly what, um, you know, bipolar is or schizophrenia is there. It's like a, it's on a spectrum, right? Mm -hmm. There's no this or that. So, what are your views on that? Do, would you say that we can just completely reject disorder classification simply because we're not able to find any form of like direct link to how, to what the cause of it is basically? Yeah. So what you've pointed out is very important and which I've actually spoken about before on other podcasts. Mm. One of the issues with psychiatric diagnosis in general, but also how it's outlined in the DSM and the ICD, is it's not based on the cause, i.e. on the etiology. So, for example, yeah. if someone comes in to hospital with a chest infection and pneumonia, typically you can do a number of tests on them. You can do a chest x-ray, and the chest x-ray will show that they have a pneumonia, and then you can test the, the phlegm, and you can check what bacteria it is, and you can say they have not only they have a pneumonia, they have a pneumonia caused by this kind of bacteria. And it's all very wonderful because you know the exact cause. And therefore, yeah. you can target the treatment very effectively. In psychiatry, it's not like that. Um, in psychiatry, our diagnoses are based on clinical presentation. So, for example, someone presents with low mood, low energy, disrupted appetite, disrupted sleep, suicidal ideation, we say that's depression. Someone presents with um, hallucinations, disrupted thoughts, disrupted behavior, delusions, we could say that's psychosis. And so it's based on the, the, the problems that the person is presenting with. This is an issue. This has always been an issue mm. um, in psychiatry. And until we develop very sophisticated um genetic markers and a more much more sophisticated understanding of the neuroscience it's going to continue to be a problem it's a problem we should acknowledge and it's one of the main limitations of our diagnostic systems but that doesn't mean that it's not useful 
to group people together mm. when they present with different signs and symptoms because you can actually make a, a very rational argument that if a number of people are presenting with a, a, a very similar, very consistent set of problems, that it's likely that the cause may be, it may be one cause, although I don't generally think it is one cause, but it might be a similar set of causes. And mm. uh, and so there's there's a lot of value, and and they may respond to very similar sets of treatments as well. So just because the diagnosis is not based on cause, it, it doesn't mean it's not useful to di- to diagnose. Yeah, and then there well, there's some people that say that the diagnosis leads us to medicalizing what is considered yeah. normal. Right? You mentioned that people have similar sets and reactions, but are these reactions to just abnormal situations that we're put Mm -hmm. on or or confronted with in in everyday life? Um, Alan Francis, who was, you know, the former chair of the DSM-4 task force, I just, I need to find it. Um, I wrote down what he said. Oh, there it is. So he said, the diagnostic exuberance of DSM-5 confuses mental disorders with the everyday sadness, anxiety, grief, disappointments, and stress responses that are an inescapable part of the human condition. DSM-5 ambitiously mislabels normal diversity and childhood immaturity as a disorder, creating stigma and promoting the excess use of medication. So he's actually a former chair of the Mm DSM-4 task force. So I'm just curious to know, your your thoughts on that do you think we while diagnosis can be useful do you think diagnosis and you know hence mental disorders are leading us to medicalizing symptoms of you know normal reactions to abnormal situations in life i absolutely think that what that person outlined is a very valid danger of diagnosis so i think all the things he mentioned absolutely can happen they can be a negative account of, of, of diagnosing, mm-hmm. of diagnosing inappropriately, of overdiagnosing. I think that can happen. I don't think it always happens. And I, I, I think it also excludes situations where diagnosis is both appropriate and useful. So I think what he outlined is a very valid danger of diagnosing. Mm. Okay. So that actually leads me then to the pros and cons of diagnosing. So how do you think we can use diagnosis to maximize the pros and minimize the cons? Yes. So as I mentioned before, I think diagnosis is a tool. It can be used well, it can be used Mm -hmm. badly. I think one important thing to understand about diagnosing is it's a model or a map. Mm. It's, It's a framework of understanding. And any good framework of understanding, the point of it is to is to be somewhat reductionist. So people criticize diagnosis because it, it can be reductionist, but yeah. that's actually a feature, not a bug. So let's say I gave you a map <laughs> of France, right? Let's say the map of France had all the actual information about the territory of France. Let's say it left nothing out. What I would be giving you is basically an accurate reflection of the of French territory, which would not be useful at all. A useful map necessarily <laughs> subtracts a lot of information. A map is a simplification of mm. the reality that is France so that you can extract very useful understanding of what you need to do, how to get from A to B. And diagnosis is similar. It takes away a lot of information. It takes away a lot of the information of the indiv- individuality of a person, which 
is a negative also, so that you can understand the problem that they are presenting with and hopefully formulate some kind of treatment. The problem is if you use diagnosis without that understanding, if you use the diagnostic map without knowing that you are using a map, then you mm, then you nest, then you formulate the whole person's treatment without taking into account their individuality, without taking mm. account their life circumstances, the vicissitudes of life, the particular problems they have, and I, I think that's when you run into trouble. So I, the pros of diagnosis, as as I've just mentioned, is it's a simplification and it's a gateway for understanding. It's important, as I mentioned before, because people who present similarly present with similar problems, may in fact have similar causes to those problems. It allows their treatment to be streamlined because it means you can have teams, for example, outpatient clinics like the one I work in that specializes in people who have had one episode of psychosis. It allows for that subspecialization and people to become very clinicians, to become very good at dealing with particular kinds of problems. It allows for research to be conducted so that, you know, you can group people together, you can study them, and then hopefully you can actually delineate the nuances between individuals. And um, even though they might have similar problems, you can start to delineate the different etiological issues which may be at play in those individuals. Uh, there's a there's a pragmatic use for diagnosis because it allows for like funding allocation. So if you meet you know a certain threshold um, and such that you can get a diagnosis, you can actually have access to funding. And this works not just in private healthcare systems, but in national health systems like the one in the UK, for example. Um, mm-hmm. uh, and it's important to know that some some problems are just much more amenable to a diagnosis than other problems. So for example, if someone came to me. Mm-hmm. And they were like, like I said, presenting with very biological features. So they might be very perplexed. That you you could tell they're not that their thoughts are very disorganized. There's been a profound loss of mm-hmm. of um, psychological and social functioning. They're hearing voices. Those kinds of problems tend to lend themselves more to a medical diagnosis than, for example, if someone came to me in my psychotherapy clinic and they said I'm having problems with my wife. Very right, different right. kinds of presenting problems. In one situation, a biological or medical diagnosis makes a lot more sense uh, th- than in this than in the second case. Mm. But do you think they can be well, linked? Of course, of so course, of course, they can be linked, and then all those things can be linked, which is why it's yeah. so important to take um, indiv- individuals as individuals, and then decide to use diagnosis or not based on the problems that they're presenting with. But I, I'll tell you one quick story. To illustrate, I think, the helpfulness of diagnosis. I was working on a hospital ward about two years ago, and we were seeing a 20-year-old man who, Mm -hmm. in in terms of diagnosis, I would say was presenting with a classic manic episode. High energy, low sleep, poor appetite, very pressured speech, a tangential thought process, as I mentioned Mm -hmm. earlier, pacing up and down, textbook manic episode, and... We were talking to his mom, actually, and his mom was so lost and so distressed, understandably, seeing these problems that her son was presenting with. And you could tell in all the questions she was asking the consultant, she she just wanted to know, she wanted to have some understanding that we knew what was going on with her son, that other people have gone through the same thing, that there is a treatment mm-hmm. available, and that there's some notion of understanding of what's likely to happen in the future, all of the things that a, a good diagnosis can provide. 
And for reasons I'm not exactly clear on, the consultant was very evasive. She was very vague in how she discussed mm. that patient's problem. She used vague words like mental health condition. She she spoke about his problems very, very vaguely and very generically. She didn't hint at any sense of a treatment. And I could tell that all of all this this person's mother wanted was a bit of a bit of clarity, a bit of understanding. Yeah. She didn't want certainty. She 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 was mature enough to understand that certainty is very rare in situations like this. But she clearly just wanted a bit of a, a of reassurance that this is Some this is comfort, a manic episode. Yeah. We call this a manic episode. That we see this all the time. That it generally does respond to medications. That we know that it's this set of medications that it tends to respond to. That this percentage of the time the medication tends to work very well, and and actually that many patients will recover fully and never have another manic episode, and that. You know, even mm. if they do, that there are treatments that can be used to I think hope to prevent would be that. the word. Hope, know, yeah, some, hope. And, and diagnosis can provide hope when when yeah. people are facing all of these very distressing issues, both patients themselves and, and their relatives. Diagnosis can provide that just uh, that framework and, and that hope and that understanding, I think, that can go a long way. That's yeah, that's very touching. And, you know, I, I can I can empathize with that with that mom and the patient as well. I I actually think this is such an important point, um, Alex, that I want to talk to you about because I'm super conflicted. Mm-hmm. Um, I know that some people really, really relate to disorder classifications, mm-hmm. to diagnosis. Like you said, it helps them. It helps them give some sort of maybe clarity or some relief that okay, I finally know what's happening and it makes them feel better. But on the contrary, I've also seen and heard and read stories of the complete opposite mm. effect where people say diagnosis have stigmatized me, they've put me in a box, mm-hmm. they've reduced, you know, as you've uh, mentioned already previously, this reductionist approach, and they found mm-hmm. it to be extremely harmful and damaging. And to me, I'm always torn between, I'm always just torn that we have to be very mindful and careful what we say because some people really relate to it and some people don't. How do you think in psychiatry we can address this obstacle? Because I think it's an important one um, based on the fact that we know disorder classifications are currently based purely on symptomology mm. and cluster of, of symptoms. How can we allow people to, do you think it would be just giving people a diagnosis, but allowing them to choose to accept it or reject it? I don't know. What, what, what do you mm. think? I mean, firstly, you said you're conflicted. And mm. what I would say is, good, you should be conflicted about it. I'm conflicted about it. Yeah. <laughs> like, it's, 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 it, it's okay to be conflicted about it because there are some situations where it's going to work and work well and some not. And sometimes it's actually hard to predict. So, yeah. Again, it comes down to when do you think it's the most appropriate? When do you think it's the most helpful? And how do you deliver it? That will depend on what kind of problems the person is presenting with. It will also depend on what kind of personality they have. I think some kinds of people, you know, want or really crave that kind of clarity. Whereas I think some people tend to, they, they really value their individuality. And so the idea of being put into any kind of box is, is something they see as very negative and labeling and stigmatizing. So mm-hmm. as a clinician, there, there are a number of things I'm juggling. I'm thinking about what kind of problems they have. I'm thinking about the severity mm-hmm. of their situation. Are they in hospital? Are, are they at, at, 
are they on in an outpatient clinic? Are they presenting with high risks or medium risks or no risks at all? I'm thinking about what kind of personality they have. There's all of these different factors that you have to juggle. And then sometimes you might suggest or or you might think a diagnosis is really appropriate and helpful. This this is a problem I run into on the ward continuously where, for example, someone has a psychotic episode and many people who have psychotic episodes don't have what we call insight. So they're they're unable to recognize, for example, the, the nature of their delusions or they don't necessarily see their auditory hallucinations as a problem. And so they reject the idea of a diagnosis. And then you're at a point of disagreement. Mm. And I think it's really, really important and productive to actually name Mm. that disagreement. If I think that someone has a diagnosis, which I think is appropriate, and my patient doesn't think it fits or disagrees, I name it there in the room. I say, you know, based on my experience, this is what I think. This is one productive way I think we can think about your problems. And if the person disagrees, I say, okay, well, it looks like we disagree. And I think I have my view and I'm trying to be transparent. I, I, I tell them my, I arrive at my view based on X, Y, and Z. You've arrived at your view based on, on, on your logic and your way of viewing things. And we disagree and it's okay that we disagree. And I'm still going to try my best to help you, even though we disagree. And we're going to try and move forward together. And I think that's a more productive mm. way of doing things. This especially comes into play and is very important when I'm treating people under a section of the Mental Health Act, which is very, very common to the setting. Once we reach that point of disagreement, so if someone has been sectioned with a likely psychotic episode. So are they coerced, if I may use that word? So no, really, we use this the, the sectioning process to avoid coercion. Um. Okay. People okay. often think about sectioning as a form of coercion, but really the whole point of mm. sectioning someone is to avoid coercion because you're saying overtly, as a clinician, you think they currently don't have the capacity to make decisions about their health and they are posing a significant risks either to their health and safety or to the health and safety of someone else. And therefore, they need to be given this legal protection under the law. They need to be given treatment against their their wishes and detained in hospital against their wishes and when i am treating someone under a section of the mental health act it's very important for me to establish if we do disagree because if we disagree and they're still in hospital Mm. and they're still receiving treatment then they're entitled to appeal they're entitled to request what we call a mental health tribunal which is a tribunal composed of an independent doctor an independent lawyer and an independent layperson who come from outside the hospital and they review all the aspects of the case, interview the doctors who are treating the patient, interview the patient, interview the nursing staff and to make sure, does this actually make sense? Does this section Mm -hmm. make sense? Does the diagnosis make sense? Should we uphold this? So as soon as I, if I'm treating someone in a hospital, as soon as I establish that they don't agree with my diagnosis, they don't agree with the treatment, then I encourage them to appeal because that's their right. And Mm. it's a very important check and balance in the system. Wow. Dr. Alex, I think this is so important because personally, I never knew this. Um, if, If you don't mind me asking, what kind of an example 
would this type of patient be like? Because I got to be honest, I feel a little uncomfortable when mm-hmm. I hear about the stories of people being detained. I think as, you know, just generally us as humans, mm-hmm. when we see that kind of, um, or when we try to imagine that kind of situation, it makes us feel a little bit scared, you know, that why is this person being yeah. um attained against their will or forced medication when they don't want to. Um, Mm -hmm. It just feels a little bit scary. And I just know Mm -hmm. I've been speaking to you for so long and like, I just know how compassionate you are. So I think it's important for me to understand what kind of an example is this patient? Because if this, he or she doesn't think he or she has anything wrong with Mm. them, then how is it our right to tell them that they have something wrong with them? So do Mm -hmm. they, are they causing people harm or are they simply like just hearing like, I don't know, SpongeBob SquarePants in their head? Mm. So <laughs> if I'm hearing SpongeBob SquarePants and I'm being forced to, you know, to be locked up or to take antipsychotics and I say no, I think it's my right. At the end of the day, I'm hearing SpongeBob. Like, is this the case or mm-hmm. um, is it more severe than that? This is very important. And again, similar to your feeling conflicted about diagnosing in general, when it comes to sectioning and detaining, you should feel we should all feel uncomfortable. It is scary. We shouldn't shy away from the fact that it's uncomfortable. It's uncomfortable. And the way to think about it is it's a last resort that mm-hmm. is okay. only used in situations where there's high risk and which really warrants it. So to detain someone in hospital for any reasonable length of time, they need to be presenting with a mental disorder, which is of the nature or degree that is severe enough that their their capacity to make decisions about their health is impaired. And in addition, they need to be posing some kind of serious risk either to their own health and safety or to the health and safety of another individual. And maybe I could give you a couple of examples that are kind of composites of people I've seen. But imagine, for example, a, a 50 year old lady walking down the streets of Brixton, completely naked, talking to strangers, <laughs> Yeah, well, this this happens all the time. Um, taking, ha- giving their money away to people, uh, mm. to also taking recreational drugs on, or drinking on top of that, sleeping rough. So imagine that. So that that would be someone who's presenting a really significant risk to them to themselves. Uh, imagine a different kind of situation. Imagine a twenty-year-old man who is who has started to believe that his family are poisoning his food and is therefore been collecting oh, knives in his in his bedroom and has thoughts of potentially retaliating against his family. I should say with that last example, I don't want to create the picture that anyone with mental health conditions is going to be violent because actually violence is pretty rare. Yeah. But th- these are the these are situations which which happen. And it, it's in it's really in these kinds of extreme situations where someone would consider sectioning someone. And even in that case, you require three people to agree. So you require two doctors and one um, specialized social worker to agree that the, that the person should be detained in hospital. Um, you, you said, you know, what if you just have unusual mental experiences with no risk? What if you hear SpongeBob, there are no risks? I see people like that in my clinic all really? the time and they don't get sectioned. And um, the truth is, I think some people would like to believe there's like a cabal of psychiatrists that love sectioning people. But the truth is there's nowhere near enough beds in our hospitals. We're constantly full. We're constantly trying to avoid sectioning people actually and treating them on an outpatient basis if we can. 
we I I see people all the time who have unusual uh, mental experiences like hearing voices or even believing things that other people don't believe. But if there are no risks, if there's no risk to their health and safety or the safety of someone else, then it's actually illegal to section them. Wow. Okay. Whether or not we agree or disagree that mental, uh, sorry, diagnosis is useful, we know that psychiatric medication prescribed prescription has doubled since the last decade. Um, there was a statistics published by the NHS on that. Uh, in particular, actually, the one I'm talking about was antidepressants. So let's just say antidepressants because I don't want to, uh, you know, talk about stats that I'm not aware of. So, so antidepressants had doubled uh, since 2010 in terms of its prescription. So things like this makes me wonder, um, are, are we doing something right? Are we doing something wrong? And a lot of these diagnoses are given to children and teenagers at the ages of 11 and 13. Do you think diagnosis leads to over-medicalization? Also, do you think medicalization is a problem in general? And I think this is important to ask you because you're a psychiatrist. I think one of your main bases is to prescribe medication. Um, it's a, it's or the, not. It's a yeah. big part of my role for sure to prescribe medication. So in terms of yeah. over-diagnosis and medicalization, I think it will vary from, from issue to issue. So I don't, for example, think probably that psychosis is overdiagnosed or that people with psychosis are overly medicalized or overly medicated. But if we talk about a different issue like depression, I am not sure if depression is overdiagnosed necessarily because it can be useful to diagnose someone with depression, whether or not you treat them with medication. But I do mm -hmm. hold the personal view that we have over-medicalized depression in our society and we over-medicate. We, we prescribe medications excessively on a large scale for depression uh, when we should be looking more in-depth at other psychological, social and, dare I say, existential factors which yeah. may be contributing to their depression. So that's what I think about depression and maybe depression and anxiety specifically. I do think right. we have medicalized it excessively in our society in the West. Uh, and therefore we, we over prescribe. That doesn't mean that medication isn't useful for a lot of people with those mm -hmm. conditions, because sometimes medication can be extremely useful, whether sometimes it's temporarily in the short term or in the medium to long term, um, medication can be extremely useful. So if you're listening to this and thinking, well, I've gotten a benefit from my medication, absolutely, you know, I'm not contesting that. But I think our framework of understanding for particularly depression and anxiety has fallen a bit too much into the medical model, because I think these are actually very complicated groups of problems, wh which have a lot of psychosocial influences as well. Yeah. And I, I think you, um, you you said psychosocial, which I guess a lot of even psychiatrists are arguing now, right? The shift from the biopsychosocial to the psychosocial biomodel to, mm. you know, give more um, importance, I would say, to the social factors, mm -hmm. to um, the environment that the person is in. So I guess then this leads me to my final question, how we can use these diagnoses, because you did talk about the pros, but we didn't mm -hmm. we didn't go into yet. I guess we went a little bit off topic, but you didn't go yeah. into how you can utilize the mm -hmm. the pros and the cons. Mm -hmm. So maybe you can you can kind of yeah. finish off with that. 
Let me, I'll talk about the cons and then I can talk about okay. how I think diagnosis can be done well. So in terms of the awesome. cons, yeah. obvi- obviously, and, and I think, again, the cons are more likely to appear if diagnosis is done badly. And those cons are that clearly you can stigmatize someone because there, there is significant stigma attached to mental health conditions, particularly things like psychosis in our society. It can leave people feeling more isolated. It can leave people feeling labeled or somehow like they're inherently bad. Some diagnoses within the mental health world are discriminated against. The classic example being EUPD, originally borderline personality disorder, where actually Mm. there's a lot of prejudice from mental health professionals towards conditions like that, which I think is an, an enormous problem in and of itself. Sometimes diagnosis is just plainly inappropriate. Like, for example, if someone presents, you know, with having trouble with their relationship or their marriage, I I wouldn't necessarily rush Mm -hmm. to a diagnostic paradigm. Um, And, you know, as I mentioned before, diagnosis can be misleading because they're not etiological, they're not based on cause. So if it's not done transparently, they can leave the patient with the illusion that there's a really fine understanding of the cause and we've really there's no mystery at all where actually there might be a lot of mystery and and that's you know you want to disabuse patients of that and then sometimes you have problems which would work better for with, with a more dimensional approach rather than a categorical approach i think a dimensional model of personality probably works better so thinking about people's different personality traits and where they lie on different spectrums. So I'm thinking about a model more like the big five model of personality rather than simple personality disorder buckets that we tend to put people into in, in the mental health world, which I, I think can be problematic. So how, how do I think diagnosis can be done well? So as I mentioned before, I think transparency yeah. is very important to show people, you know, this is our system. It's not a perfect system, but this is a system we used to try and understand. Yeah. I think diagnosis should be done ideally collaboratively. So it's more a discussion, you know, you're telling me you have these problems. This is my understanding of the problems you seem to have. This is how we tend to diagnose this kind of set of problems. Do you agree? Do you disagree? Where do you agree? Mm. Where do you disagree? So more of a collaborative approach, I think, is better. When, when there's an absence of causative factors in the diagnosis to try and bring in some causation into it. So, for example... If someone had all the features of emotionally unstable personality disorder, that diagnosis does not come with any implicit causes. And so it can leave patients with that diagnosis to feel like, what, am I personality disordered? Am I just, is there something wrong with me? But if you explain to someone with a diagnosis, as I have many times, that there are really good reasons why people develop these problems, often related to childhood trauma, to inconsistent parenting, to their own predisposition maybe for emotional sensitivity, which can be a very good thing, but then can go awry if there's trauma laid on top of that. Then people tend to understand, oh, okay, it's not that I'm bad, that there's something inherently wrong with me, but there's just a combination of my predisposition and my life experiences have led me to have this set of traits, which in some situations may have saved my life once, but now in my adult life, is, is causing me problems. And that's a much nicer place to be rather than just to label someone and say, you have emotionally unstable personality disorder and, 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 and end the conversation there. Um, and the last thing about how diagnosis 
can be done well is to emphasize that it doesn't need to be a prison or, or a trap, but really diagnose when it's done well is a very it's a useful description of, of someone's problems. It's, it may lead to a better understanding of what may have caused those problems, and it can hopefully lead to a way out. And just because someone has a diagnosis at one point in their life, it doesn't mean they, need, they can't um, get better. It doesn't mean they can't recover fully. It doesn't mean they can't change. It doesn't, have to, it doesn't have to define them for their whole lives. I think that's very beautifully said, and I absolutely agree. And I, I hope all psychiatrists approach just people with, with your compassion. So thank you. Thank you very much. Well, Dr. Alex, this leads us to the end of our discussion. Thank you so much for your time. As always, it's been, you know, very eye-opening and a lot of food for thought there. And I hope we can continue to have open conversations like this more in the future. Thank you, everyone, for tuning in and listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please do support us by either subscribing on your favorite podcast hosting site or by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts to increase our outreach. I also highly recommend for you to check out the Monthly Learning Podcast, which I will link to this episode's description. They recently released some amazing episodes on the topic of obsessive compulsion, anorexia, and an audio essay on intrusive thoughts, so do check it out. Catch you guys in the next episode.